Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Hello, this is Karen Mack and Jennifer Kaufman, and we are the authors of A Version of the Truth, our new book. Um, This is our second book. Our first book was Literacy and Longing in Los Angeles, which came out a couple years ago. That book, we were lucky enough to be 15 weeks on the L.A. Times bestseller list, going to number one, and we also won the Fiction Award from the California Booksellers Association. This book is called A Version of the Truth, and it addresses the question, what happens when the truth just isn't good enough? Which road do you take, and what are the consequences of those actions? Part of the inspiration for this book was the Kurt Vonnegut quote, you are what you pretend to be. And our lead character, Cassie, starts becoming the character that she's pretending to be. Jennifer will start reading the prologue. I've flunked the second, third, and ninth grades. In my heart, I knew I was dumb. No one actually said it. In fact, everyone went to great lengths to avoid the issue altogether. I wasn't dumb. I was simply the opposite of smart, which at the time meant slow, unfocused, undisciplined, and uncooperative. My mother used to insist that I had faulty wiring, as if I were some kind of dud appliance. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to quit. I finally did when I was 16. Instead of driving lessons, my mother agreed to let me get my high school equivalency. The fact of the matter is, we were both worn out. Like the way I kind of felt when Frank, drunk as a skunk, flew off the highway in his F-150 supercharged lightning and got himself killed. A witness described my husband's truck as skidding off the cliff into the ocean like a set of dishes sliding off a tray. I imagined him speeding toward home at midnight in his usual state of bonhomie, his Johnny Cash CD blasting away his Hawaiian shirt whipping in the wind, and then boom, all that hotshot charisma and sex appeal smashed to smithereens. It was rotten weather the next morning when the cops drove up to break the news. The rains came freakishly late in the early spring and then just sort of hung around. Wet, sloppy streets, dead leaves, the sky the color of dirty dishwater. They must have thought I was a pretty tough cookie as they handed me the baggie with his personal items. I think they also worried I'd gone into shock. Oh, but I'd already done that a few years back, when the poison in our marriage lurked under the surface like a jellyfish. He was dead, and I wasn't mourning. I'm not a bad person, really I'm not. It's just that I'm not the grieving widow, and that's not acceptable in our society, unless maybe you've murdered the son of a bitch, which I didn't. But as the therapist told me in our community center shortly after the funeral, when I confessed my lack of feelings— I was the epitome of freeway fantasy for divorcees and unhappy housewives. So here's how it goes. Your partner walks out of the house one morning, and shortly thereafter, you get the call, the one you've been hoping for all those lousy years. It's clean. It's final. You're free. A life cut short by a happy coincidence. The worst part was the week after the funeral. My mother and I sat side by side on Frank's shiny leather sofa like two crows on a telegraph wire as the procession of people with sympathetic faces and hushed voices paraded by. 
The silences were long and awkward. There's no way anyone can start a halfway interesting conversation at a time like this. You can't exactly talk about something fun you've done the weekend before or anything good that's going on in your life. And you dare not refer to the growing pile of grief counseling books stacked on the coffee table. When God Doesn't Make Sense, The Grief Recovery Handbook, Four Copies of Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, and a paperback version of Living Through Personal Crisis, this one might actually be of some use. No, you're limited to a very narrow range of topics, like the food, the memorial service, recapping the accident, at what angle did the truck careen off the cliff, and by the way, where do you keep the scotch? Most of the time, people end up drinking too much and telling unfunny vignettes about the deceased. Remember that time Frank got totally blasted and cannonballed naked into the pool at the wedding and then got all the bridesmaids' dresses soaked? Cassie, is there anything I can do? Wouldn't they like to know? How about paying off Frank's credit cards, dumping his drug paraphernalia hidden in his smelly sock drawer? Oh, and how about picking up his ashes, selecting the urn, and delivering it to his family in Florida, who couldn't bother to come out? But could I send them his computer, his country western collection? And yes, even his truck, which I'd be only too happy to ship if it weren't flattened like a coin on a railroad track. They also asked about his life insurance policy, which he cashed in several years ago to buy the truck. But still, I'm not grieving. I do, however, suffer from guilt, festering anger, frustration, and oh yes, did I mention that I'm broke? It is a kind of grief, let me assure you. But I didn't always feel this way. There was a time when I just wanted him to love me. Not in a passionate way, I didn't hope for that. I wanted him to love me in the way one goes about an ordinary life, doing the same mundane things, knowing what comes next day after day until you lie in bed beside him at night and listen to the familiar signs of traffic way off in the distance. I wanted him to call me when he got there or if he was late or stuck in traffic and wanted to just hear the sound of my voice the way I wanted to hear his. I wanted him to leave me money, fix the DVD player, tell me to drive carefully, complain about the business, leave wet towels on the bathroom floor, admire my dress, but add that it might be too low or too tight. In the end... He broke my heart. Even a louse can break your heart. The progression of it all was swift and constant, like the onset of rain in November and then freezing winds in winter. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't concentrate. It was like a cold, hard sentence. I could tell when he used a false tone or eyed me with stony resentment. I learned the routine, the mechanical switching of the mouth, that nervous thing he did with his fingers when he lied. So there I sat in an empty house, the mail piled up in a dump heap by the door, unread soggy newspapers littering the lawn, me lying in bed all afternoon, drapes drawn, lights dimmed, overdue DVDs scattered around like unwanted possessions put out with the trash. Hi, honey. How you doing? Great, Mom. Frank and I are on our way out. We're going to a dinner party. That's nice, dear. Is it fancy? Sort of. I'm wearing my new cocktail dress. Well, don't forget the hostess gift. Oh, yes, a lovely little grenade would be perfect. Absolutely. You two have a good time now. I felt ashamed the way I did in school when I'd studied all week and still blow the test. Eventually, I just wore myself out. I got sick of struggling, immune to failure, and finally felt nothing at all. I quit. I simply didn't love him anymore. No one ever plans for this to happen. I remember the first time I met him four years ago. 
He was tall and lean, with high cheekbones and sleek black hair pulled back into a ponytail like a samurai, a mixture of brute force and grace. Who knew he had the heart of a cockroach? He was holding a wounded red-tailed hawk that he jokingly called roadkill. When he walked into the Topanga Wildlife Center where I worked with my mother, he looked around like a warrior, his black penetrating eyes fixed on my face. He reminded me of a falcon, predatory and dangerous. I should have known better. Biologist Conrad Lorenz has proven that baby chicks run for cover when they see a silhouette of a falcon, even a plywood model. We talked a bit, and later he called. He was cool, aloof, with a sexy languor about him. Trouble, like the devil himself. Handsome, and terrific in bed. He liked my long legs, he said, my dark water-green eyes, my wide mouth, and the fact that I didn't chatter on and on like other women. I've always thought I was plain, but he made me feel pretty. He swooped me up, came on strong, decided it was time for him to get married. All his friends were married off. Lucky me. The timing was perfect. He proposed after two months, and I felt grateful to have him. After we got married, I started helping him part-time in his business, a towing company located on Pacific Coast Highway. Every day, surfers and stoners and tourists would park their cars illegally along the highway and then come back wet and tired to an empty space. His lot was behind the mobile station across the street from the most expensive shopping area in Malibu, and he stacked up so many cars on beautiful sunny weekends that it looked like a parking lot for a rock festival or giant swap meet. I worked in a cramped, air-conditioned office trailer that sat at the top of a stony, dusty road leading to the lot. Anxious people in everything from wetsuits to bikinis and flip-flops would show up there at all hours, sometimes in cabs or on foot, staring numbly at a handwritten sign which informed them that they owed Frank's towing $240, no checks, plus $65 a day for storage, plus whatever the city parking ticket was for leaving their cars in a towway stone. Often they'd leave their wallets or purses in the vehicles, and I'd have to accompany them like convicts to their car, unlock it, and stand there while they grabbed their stuff and locked it back up again. Don't you give them the keys, Frank would warn me. They'll split if they get the chance. How can they split? You got them stacked in. Give the kids a break, I'd always say, looking at their sandy bare feet and sweaty, stressed-out faces. Who told them to park there? Did I tell them to park there? I just do what the cops tell me to do. Don't be such a bleeding heart. He survived on his wits, and he scared me out of mine. I could always tell when he was about to blow. He'd get the fixed eye of a man with a serious grievance. Bullying eyebrows and those muscles around the mouth would tense up and sort of pop. I'd sit there rigid, waiting for the unpleasantness that filled the air to disperse, and then I'd get on with my day. Working in the lot, I always felt like a crumb, especially with the kids who didn't have any money. I'd sit at my desk, avoiding their gaze as they called their parents, and then I'd listen to their sad, sad stories, feeling their embarrassment. One kid had to wait for about six hours until his mother got off work in the city and then drove all the way to the beach to bail him out, in rush hour. That may have been the day I'd added up the bill wrong, messing up the numbers, and Frank got so steam he scrawled bird brain like graffiti across the back of my chair. Then, in a voice barely above a whisper, but with the force of a shout, he announced in front of everybody that this was a place of business, not the house of dumbness, and that I was a freak of nature, a flunky with no future. I walked right out on my job that day. Quit. Indeed I did. 
I told him I preferred working at the Wildlife Center. In retrospect, I should have walked out on him. But you know what? It doesn't really matter anymore. Seems Frank had mortgaged the business to the hilt and cross-collateralized it with our house. So I've now moved back with my mother to my childhood home on the crest of Topanga Canyon, a small community 30 minutes from L.A. with one traffic light and one turtle crossing sign. It's the kind of neighborhood where people are slightly vague about how many dogs or cats they own, so they simply leave out giant bowls of kibble by the back door. You see mangy, one-eared cats lazing around people's porches, elaborate wind chimes, and hand-carved birdhouses. My mother calls it rustic as opposed to seedy, and I tend to agree with her. My backyard is part of the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, almost 600 miles of hiking trails and forests and valleys. It's a wild, uninhabitable, mountainous area with dark forests and lakes and waterfalls, mysterious caverns, and lush green canopies filled with the songs of hundreds of birds. As a child, I was free to roam the hills with no thoughts of my shortcomings or deficiencies. I'd spend whole weekends in the outdoors in a dreamlike state of opulent imaginings, making up stories of my accomplishments and amazing feats. I'd see bobcats and wolves, coyotes, foxes, and red-tailed hawks who torpedoed down like missiles to impale their prey. I was at home in this world, never afraid of the animals, even the dangerous ones. So now I've done my bit, sitting in the living room with acquaintances and distant relatives, like my great-aunt Stella, who tried to buck me up with depressing clichés from her grief-counseling sessions, such as closure and circle of caring. Thankfully, no one drops by anymore. My mother and I have finished wrapping the hardened, half-eaten casseroles and cakes and storing them in the freezer. I walk into my cramped bedroom that didn't seem this small when I was a child and look out the narrow window toward the mountains. This used to be my favorite time of year. Soon the monarch butterflies will make their spectacular migration along the California coast on their way to Mexico. They arrive here every year in the same spot, brilliant blotches of yellow and black, dripping from the trees like fall foliage. They litter the driveways and cover the windshields of the cars. I'm always so careful not to crush their delicate wings as I gently sweep them from the steps of our house. I always tell people, you know, you don't need to go to the Amazon or New Guinea to be wonderstruck by nature. You can just walk out my front door any day in the fall and you'll see those glorious beings flitting and darting in the air, a rush of iridescent color, like fairies or angels in disguise. It doesn't matter what kind of mood you're in, or even if you're in no mood at all and just carrying on like a robot trying to get through the day. There they are, swirling in the air like escaping bits of fragmented color from a kaleidoscope. My mother says that watching monarchs is solace for the pain of living. I guess I wouldn't go that far, but they're a miracle just the same. They follow the sun, fly as far as 50 miles a day and as high as 100 feet. Then they end up in Mexico right on schedule, around November 2nd, the Day of the Dead. Legend says they are the souls of dead relatives returning home. Lord, I hope not. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit 
www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writers Block is produced by KQED.